Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we are here to answer questions about meditation practice, about mindfulness, about applying mindfulness to your daily life, answering questions that are of importance to you, that have some practical importance where an answer could benefit you spiritually. Again, we're not looking for speculative or philosophical or analytical questions, unless you have some real doubt that is bothering you. But well then, honestly, the best answer is to take the doubt as a meditation object and try to see it as impermanent suffering and non-self. So those are the kind of answers that probably going to give. If you're new here, you can check out our website. Um, it's in the bottom of the screen. And there's a booklet that you can read and you can consider signing up for the at-home course to be given progressive instruction on how to cultivate mindfulness. There's no video for this session. Instead, we will have the questions put up on the screen. For the first 15 minutes, we'll be collecting questions. So let's just spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation. You can post your questions whenever you like. And once you've done that, just do some walking, sitting. And we'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
Okay, we're back. So we'll start with questions now. If you have asked your question, you can just close your eyes and stay mindful. If you have questions, well, from now on, we'll ask that the only thing that is post in, posted in the chat are questions. Please limit the chat to questions only. And if you have questions, you can continue to post them. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Is there a stage of letting go that happens together with different stages of meditation? When one gets disenchanted with old habits, will they no longer arise? So, uh, let's, there's two sorts of things we could describe as letting go. Um, it, it's not, I think I've talked about this before, it's not quite precise to talk about letting go, because letting go implies a act of... Um, repelling or or disconnecting from something and that's not precisely how it works the the reality is that wisdom prevents the arising of states that are based on ignorance and delusion so there's two levels on which that occurs the first level is the temporary mundane level and this doesn't even require meditation, but through the stages of insight up until anulomanyana, there is a deeper and successively deeper understanding of impermanent suffering and non-self, which act as wisdom to prevent the arising of the hindrances. But that's temporary. And that wisdom can recede and be replaced by ignorance and wrong views again over time. Not easily, but uh, but uh, eventually, potentially can. And the second level, of course, is the attainment of uh, the super mundane absorption into uh, take into nibbana so taking nibbana as an object and because of the nature of that cessation experience the wisdom has eradicated the potential for the arising of certain defilements So at those stages, there is a, a letting go on a different level, though it's not exactly letting go, it's the non-arising. Why do all my karma, even from childhood, come up in my meditation time? I thought I had moved on from those mistakes and wrongdoings in my later life. So 
uh, karma is the, is the action, and if you say comes up, what what would come up would be memories of it. Could also be results of it, although the memories are a kind of result. So if you've done bad things in the past, you can feel guilty about them sometimes, feel sad about them, uh, have the stress and the, the, the tension because of them. Um, so the process by which you free yourself from them isn't as straightforward as moving on well, I guess that that those words work, but it it's right. It's not quite so straightforward. In order to actually move on, you have to become completely um, disenchanted with them. So, if they're still coming up and still bothering you, then you're clearly not disenchanted. Disenchanted doesn't mean fed up or had enough of. It means completely. Uh, uninterested in having lost any any capacity to react to and that requires a, a familiarity that that you're cultivating through this um experience that you're describing of having them come up again so them coming up again bothering you again coming up again bothering you again eventually leads to a disenchantment and it leads you to see, I mean, part of the disenchantment involves seeing the three characteristics. So you see that you're not in control. You thought you had given them up and well, they're just coming back on their own and they're coming back again and again and it's unpredictable and it's not the way you want it. And so you see that when you get attached to them, you just create more suffering when you try to fix them or try to get rid of them, just more and more stress. Uh, that experience is the process by which you you let go of them. It's it's aided, of course, or um, facilitated by the practice of mindfulness. So it it comes about as a result of noting and staying objective and um, changing your perspective on them. So you're not trying to get rid of them. You're not trying to fix them. Just seeing them clearly. How long should I note an emotion if it doesn't go away before returning to focus on the rising and falling of the stomach? Well, emotions tend to go away pretty quickly. Um, you might be con um, confusing or uh, um, conflating the, the physical and the mental. So there may be painful physical sensations or feelings of heat or tension or that sort of thing and you should uh, note those as well but uh, i would note it for quite some time after a long time if it doesn't go away just go back i mean there's no number because it's going to depend on your uh, level of attachment to them so just try and stay with them for quite some time and you feel like you're very familiar with it by the at this point and it's just not going away then you can go back but as i said emotions are not that sort of thing they should really um dissipate you just have to be noting the things that are triggering them because it's usually re-triggering they come back again and again in walking meditation 
I don't notice a rising and ceasing of experience when stepping. Should I forget about that and just focus on the movement of walking? Yeah, the, the practice is mindfulness. The, the seeing arising and ceasing, for example, that's called, well, that's a part of vipassana. The vipassana is what comes from the practice. It's not how you practice. If you're If you're focusing on that, then you're not focusing on mindfulness. Mindfulness is focusing on when the step, when the foot begins to move. As soon as you feel it start to move, you say step, being, and then right when it stops. That's what you should be doing. When I do the metta meditation to a special person, will he receive it? Often I think about a person in meditation, then this person reaches out to me soon. Why is that happening? I think so. I think there's some sense that there is that sort of connection. Um, there, there's a description of how metta is uh, expansive. Uh, the wholesome is expansive and evil thoughts, wishing people to suffer and so on. It's not the same because it contracts inwardly. I think that's in the Melinda Panha, it mentions that. There's no real uh, concrete doctrine either way uh, it's important to note that that's not really the point of metta it's not really the focus uh, your focus should be on your state of mind you're trying to cultivate the qualities that wish people well-being you can't you aren't of course um, the reason why they they suffer or the reason why they feel happiness they have to deal with those things on their own what you can influences your own state of mind and that's what you try to focus on what are some of the steps one can take to ensure one practices daily well there's a lot of things that obstruct your daily practice you have to address those um, setting up a schedule can be helpful a routine, having a community, uh, people who hold you accountable. Um, I, I guess I would say there's no magic pill or or spell that you can cast to make it happen. There's no ma nothing magic that's going to make it happen. The steps you take are doing it. <laughs> And uh, that that step has to be taken every day, of course. There's no, there's nothing else. You just do it. And if you don't do it, you don't do it. Not because of something else, it's just because you didn't do it. Is the study of the texts imperative, or should one focus on the practice? I would say one's study of the text should be proportionate to one's practice. If you're practicing a lot, you should undertake some study of the texts. If you're not practicing a lot, you shouldn't take under you shouldn't undertake a lot of practice of the a lot of study of the texts. Basically that um is it imperative you don't see the point is if you're doing a lot of practice without any 
um, study or guidance, without any guidance, which could be in the form of study, but much better would be in the form of a teacher, then it's very easy to get off track. Uh, the opposite, if you're getting a lot of guidance, but you're not practicing, well, it's basically useless. And it, it can also be a source for misunderstanding because of the lack of clarity in the mind when you're studying. I heavily struggle with self-control, and I am unwilling to exert the slightest effort. When I make a choice, I betray it hours after. Could meditation help? Yeah, meditation doesn't require you to struggle. Um, it doesn't require you to change things, which kind of makes it easier. Um, it's, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a too-good-to-be-true sort of thing. Um, but clearly struggling isn't the answer it doesn't really work we the way the brain apparently there's there's scientists that will talk about these sorts of things that the brain has a much easier time saying yes than saying no no is a struggle yes is not a struggle so you can never really um sustain the no because it's uh, it's it's stressful it requires exertion and eventually the the that part of the brain becomes overworked and the same doesn't go for saying yes to something saying yes when when you want to do something telling yourself no is is harder and that that you, you see that in in practice that yeah as you say it's it's a common thing to struggle with self-control mindfulness isn't going to fix your problems quickly, but it will provide you with some new perspective. And gradually over time, it being important that you have the perspective that it's going to be gradually over time, gradually over time it, it will change how you look at the things that you um, indulge in, your addictions, um, even your aversions, those your fears, your worries, all those sorts of things. Over time, you're going to see them more clearly, see that they're just causing you stress and suffering, and you'll be less inclined towards them. You'll be inclined towards a more present, a more state of being present. So mindfulness doesn't require much. It just requires you be here and now. We normally would think of this sort of situation as being um, only here and now, like I only just want to do nothing, right? But that's not actually the case. Where when we say we we don't want to do this, we don't want to do that, we just want to sit around and do nothing. We're not actually interested in doing nothing. We're interested in 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 indulging in in our likes and dislikes, in our um, addictions, aversions, worries, fears, etc., etc. Guilt. It might even be well, none of those things are nothing. And so all of those things are the problem. Mindfulness, of course, will, will lead to a somewhat similar state to what we think we're in when we're procrastinating, when we're uh, lazy, that sort of thing. We think we're in this state, but mindfulness will actually lead us to that state where we're not really doing anything or much of anything. We're just being present. And so all these things that we thought were nothing, are, are, we get rid of them, the, the, the greed, the addiction, the aversion, the guilt, the, the worry, the fear, all of those things will, will be tossed. 
doesn't mean we'll get up and go and save the world or become rich or famous or anything like that. Um, it, it means that we'll have a better presence and the things that we do do, do end up undertaking will um, be for purpose and benefit to ourselves and others. When sitting and keeping my hands in the lap, I feel discomfort. However, when I hold my legs at the point where they are crossed, meditation is much easier. Is it appropriate doing so? So easier is not really what we're interested in. Um, those sorts of problems are kind of preliminary problems. It's not wrong. The posture, the position, and none of that, none of that is important. And it's important that you understand that it's not important, so you don't think it must be like this, it must be like that, and that there's some special reason for it. There are simple reasons for why we sit the way we, we do. And in the long term, you'll probably find the way we uh, the way we advise to sit and to hold your hands and so on to be in the long term more beneficial. So just think of these sorts of short-term discomforts, um, any sort of discomfort, as a part of the meditation. And anytime you are doing something just so that you don't have to experience discomfort, that's not actually a valid reason. Uh, making your meditation easy is not the right direction that you want to go in, generally speaking. So it's important that you keep that in mind before you make decisions. Now, again, if it's really overwhelming and, and too much for you to have your hands on your lap, etc., uh, there's certainly no problem with sitting in whatever uh, position. Again, that being said, well, two things. First of all, as I said, um, you'll probably find the way we describe it to be long-term more sustainable. But second, it's the way we told you to do it. So if, if the tradition you're practicing describes doing things in, in a certain way, but it's, it's uncomfortable, uh, unless it's overwhelming. Discomfort is not a reason for not doing something. And that's important because part of the wisdom and the understanding, the learning, the growth that we're looking for, that we're seeking, is to overcome our likes and dislikes, uh, to, to be free from reactions to dis things like discomfort. Pain is an important object of meditation, so avoiding it is actually to your detriment. seems counterintuitive because we're so accustomed to running away from or fixing or avoiding pain, but that's the truth. Mindfulness, part of mindfulness is discomfort, is being present with discomfort just as it is being present with comfort and pleasure. Can the insight knowledges be achieved at home by a lay person that practices intensively? and holds the five or eight precepts? Yes, none of those factors prevent that you mentioned prevent one from experiencing the insight knowledge, um, but none of those factors are sufficient. So keeping precepts is not sufficient. Um, being one who practices intensively is generally sufficient for some knowledge, but there's a qualifier there that it has to be the practice of mindfulness. Um, it has to be actual practice. And if it's done without a teacher, it's 
less likely to conduce to the arising of insight knowledges. So I would recommend practicing under guidance, practicing uh, a particular technique, an established technique. But yes, people who do the at-home course in our tradition, I would say to some extent, um, generally um, succeed in giving causing the insight knowledges to arise. Are the volitional formations habitual? I have overcome wrong view, but still slip into delusion alarmingly often. Overcome wrong view. Well, wrong view, let's be a little hard on you because the wrong view technically is the um, lack of uh, understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Right view is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And if you understand those, technically, completely understand them, there is no such thing as, there is no never going to be the arising of delusion. So the fact that you slip into delusion means you have not overcome wrong view. What you perhaps have overcome is intellectual wrong view, which is great. It's good if that's the case, but it's certainly not sufficient to uh, prevent the arising of delusion. If you think that somehow it's just residual, like a habitual residue, no, that's not. So as far as them being, if that's your question about them being habitual, like it's just something that you're going to have to be patient with now that you've overcome wrong view, that's not the case. Uh, if you have become a sotapanna and you have uh, eradicated sakayaditi, for example, then it certainly is just a matter of time, but it can take up to seven lifetimes to become completely free from delusion, even for a sotapanna. So I, I guess I would be a little bit cautious about claiming things like I have overcome wrong view um, and have an understanding that really view... Um, is sometimes better understood as perspective. If you slip into delusion, you still have wrong perspective, which is another way of of translating ditti. So your perspective on things is still wrong. You're not looking at things the right way, and that's why you become deluded. How do you know that meditation is actually real and not the mind playing tricks? Meditation is not real. Meditation is just a concept. It's just a word. Reality is um, experience. So what we say, when we call meditation, is a particular way of of, of uh, relating or, or approaching experience, responding to experience. Um, we, we use the word mindfulness. So, well, I mean, even the word mindfulness is not great. But um, we apply a mantra as a reminder to uh, keep the mind in, in an objective awareness to prevent the arising of any kind of reaction or judgment and to allow for the clarity to see the experiences as they are. Um, as for seeing things clearly as they are, there are some 
reassurances that you can even intellectually appreciate as to why that might that seeing things as they really are might actually be the case and that's because there's only there's a limit to the extent to which the mind can play tricks for example the mind can play tricks on you making you think you're um let's say talking to god but if you have a, a hearing, a, a sound in your mind, that the mind cannot trick you into thinking that you're experiencing that sound. If you feel pain, it's not possible for you to be hallucinating. In other words, not actually experiencing pain. You are experiencing pain. Now, it's not not for sure that you actually have a body that is triggering the pain, but the experience of pain is real. That's the that's the limit. You you experience cannot be a trick. It's just not. Uh, it's, by its very nature, it's not possible. Seeing when you the, when you see something, what you see could be just a trick, an illusion, hallucination. You might not really see it. But the seeing, the experience of seeing, is unavoidably real. And so the clarity that you gain is based on those realities of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, and seeing how that works, seeing what... what um, how they work, seeing how they arise and cease, and seeing the, the causal relationship between them, seeing, most importantly, their nature as, as being impermanent suffering and non-self, in the sense of just arising and ceasing without any substance, and being able to discriminate or discern the difference between those realities and the concepts that we make them out to be like meditation as a concept or the mind as a concept when you can make discern when you can distinguish between those two levels of reality the conceptual and the the experiential then you're able to approach reality without delusion and free yourself from the deluded reactions of liking and disliking and addiction and aversion and so on. Sometimes there is rising and falling of experience, and there is just the experience without the experiencer. Is this right noting practice? So that sounds like a experience that would come from uh, from right noting practice, but it's not right noting practice. It's what we call jnana, knowledge or or insight, and it can actually become a source of attachment if you then focus on it. So it's important to distinguish that. No, that is not right noting practice, though it quite likely is a result of actual noting practice but uh, if you 
take it as an object and somehow try to cultivate it or so on, then you'll stop actually engaging in right noting practice and so you will cease to progress. Noting practice is the actual practice. It's distinct from any results you might have or not have. Should one not stop unwholesome emotions and thoughts when they arise, like revenge, and just note them as experiences, or should one not entertain them and cultivate wholesome thoughts? Well, you can do both. In the long term, um, then the, the noting is going to be of more value. But practically, in, in the beginning especially, the cultivation of wholesome uh, oppositional states like friendliness or compassion or those sorts of things can be supportive. There are various meditations you can do like friendliness, mindfulness of the Buddha, mindfulness of death, mindfulness of the disgustingness of the body, these sorts of things that can help to Wow, straighten out your crookedness in the mind if you're lustful or if you're fearful or if you're complacent or if you're bitter or mean or, or angry. These various types of meditation can be oppositional. But in the long term, the point is that wisdom is the only thing that's ever going to completely free you from uh, unwholesome inclinations. So that requires mindfulness, that requires objectivity, even with the unwholesome states. You have to come to understand the process, how they cause stress and suffering and what gives rise to them and um, how how the arising of them is based on ignorance and delusion. And you have to gain a clarity of mind that prevents them from arising due to its very clarity. That requires mindfulness, so that's going to be more beneficial. How do you live happily without anxious dependence upon the future? Well, you come to see the stress involved with anxious dependence on the future. You come to see it as useless, unbeneficial, and you become so clear in your understanding of that reality that you just give it up like everything else. When you give up, you let go. When you let go, you live happily. Is it ethical to value one's own interests over others if done mindfully? To what extent is selfishness compatible with mindfulness? Well, see, the issue with this is that um, the... 
the denial of um, the the request or or, or anyone's uh, need for, the denial of someone's need for support is actually not in your best your own best interest um, sometimes the 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 the, well, the denial in the sense of, of cruelty, when you are doing it out of cruelty, or not when doing it out of cruelty, when it involves cruelty. Now, there are cases where it, it need not involve cruelty. For example, when, when your needs um, outweigh their needs or are, are, are in conflict with their needs. Then there are cases where um, you reasonably are unable to, are, are you reasonably are able to deny someone's need for for support. Um, but in really in the long term, it's going to be much more compatible, where your engaging in the support of others is going to be um, to your own benefit. I think um, the, the problem, or one, what well, the problem on both sides is that we overestimate both other people's need for support and our own need for um, for support or for uh, attention. In other words, we we think we need more than we actually need, and we tend to think other people need support usually because they think they do as well other people will feel like they need something from us and we often tend to agree with them only for it to turn out that they didn't actually need us and it was a waste of our time and it was actually unbeneficial in the long term because it creates depend their dependency on us and that sort of thing so when you gain better clarity, you you get a better sense of the right way to act, and you're never going to likely know for sure what is the right thing to do in every instance. Quite often, it's quite clear where you see that someone is just crying for help, or or you know is, is not really in need of support, but is just reacting to their own pain, and and rather than dealing with it, they are trying to find someone else to pawn it off on or to um, give them the excuse not to have to deal with it, that sort of thing. And on the other hand, you sometimes realize that the only reason that you're denying a request for or a need from someone else is your own uh, attachment to your own pleasure, your own uh, indulgence, uh, or maybe indulgence in cruelty or, or, or uh, uh, um annoyance at being asked or being being um, interrupted or that sort of thing and you can see that uh, there's there, there's in many cases it would be wrong of me to deny this and in other cases it would be clearly wrong for me to indulge this person's desire for support and then you you find yourself somewhere in the middle where you're not sure and you just have to make a reasonable like everything else in life, you have to make a reasonable decision, and mindfulness will help you with that. Mindfulness will help you in all aspects to 
be able to see the difference between uh, what is important and what is unimportant, what is essential and what is unessential. This is a famous teaching of the Buddha that uh, you have to be able to see the essential, the difference between the essential and the unessential. Do I need to be a Buddhist to be a bhikkhuni nun? Well, there's a question. <laughs> uh, trying to think, in what sense would you want to be a nun but not Buddhist? I think the answer is just straight up no. Like, there's really no... The only sense in which you might be able to wrangle that, I guess, out of that is if you just understood Buddhist as being a label. But if you're not taking the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha as your support, you have no business or right to be ordained as, a, as even a novice, let alone a fully ordained bhikkhuni. And that's really all it means to be a Buddhist. If the mind doesn't exist, only momentary mind states, then when we develop the seven factors, a mind doesn't have seven factors. Rather, the factors may arise as momentary mind states. Is this correct? It's very hard to answer this because you're mixing, based on language, you're mixing... Um, you're mixing concepts, and it can be confusing in the mind. Um, it's the kind of question that is trying to get at some theory of reality, what actually exists, and that's not really the best way to go about things. It's enticing, and it's the way that we generally go about these ideas of self and not-self and soul and, and, and so on. But The, the question really falls apart and isn't really all that important when you just focus on, on experience and you see what is being cultivated. You see what factors are being cultivated and what factors are not being cultivated. And you see the nature of, of the various factors as being impermanent, suffering, and non-self, like everything else. I would say, rather than answer this question in any way, I would I would point you in that direction to try and focus your attention on ultimate reality, on, on experience, and try and see what's what's going on in your experience, and um, try and and appreciate the importance of the arising of certain factors because that will uh, direct you the way in which to incline your mind. But overall, it's not terribly important to be focused on them. Most important thing to focus on is the cultivation of sati, or what we translate as mindfulness. Is the pineal gland relevant to meditation? Buddha usually has a mark between his eyebrows. Does this have some value or importance? Well, I mean, certainly the Buddha's entire brain was probably exceptional. Um, but 
I, I get the sense that this sort of question is trying to get at whether you should focus your attention on that part of the head. And that's not that's not what you're asking, but it's the only way but that's the only way I could think that it could actually be practically relevant because otherwise what are you asking? Do you need a pineal gland to practice? Likely you're not asking that. You're likely asking whether or not asking, but thinking of whether you should focus your attention on it, because that's sometimes what happens. There's a sensation there. And I guess in summit to meditation, that tends to be the area where uh, visualizations arise. Like you might have a casino, you might see lights or colors or pictures or um, something that you could take as a focus, as an object of meditation. In mindfulness, of course, there's no such thing. So the answer really is no in our practice. I don't know if you've read our booklet, but you might give that a read and maybe take the at-home course. That would likely help to um, remove the need to ask such questions. Not, I'm not um, disparaging your question. It's just, if you understand mindfulness, you'd probably be able to see that that's not really a, a relevant subject. Did the Buddha practice and teach the noting technique as we practice it? The closest sutta I've read, spoken words by the Buddha, is let the seen be seen, heard be heard, etc. Well, there's that, but there's also the Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha says, when walking, one knows I am walking. Gachami, which is one word in Pali, so we would just say walking, walking. Um... It, it would be odd if the Buddha and the monks in his time were not practicing that way, because mantra meditation, I think, is precedes the Buddha. Certainly, it's just a general, uh, basic uh, means of cultivating the sort of things that the Buddha mentioned. Like, how else would the scene just be seen? Well, the practice is to say, to remind yourself. That's the whole m meaning or reason for the use of the word sati, which means remembrance. You cultivate remembrance. It's why the proximate cause of sati is tirasanya, which is the um, strengthened recognition. When you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, you're strengthening that recognition, and that leads to what we call mindfulness. Now, sati or remembrance is um, just a state where you grasp the object as it is without any making less of it than it is or making more than it is, more of it than it is when you're able to make just enough or just what it is it is what it is then you've got sati and that's how you, so this the mantra is how you cultivate that in order to protect my pets and plants from pests i spray them with various insecticides the pests die when they come in contact with the substance is this considered as breaking the precept? This is considered murder because you are acting in such a way with the intention to bring about death, to cause death. So you have mens rea, you have the guilty mind. Um, your your defense or justification is worth picking apart um, or examining. Um, first of all, the language you use, 
you're not spraying insecticides, first of all, to protect. You're spraying to kill. And the corollary or the, the assumption is that, might be a valid assumption, that through murder um, there will be uh, freedom from affliction for pets and plants. The other part is the language that you use, pets, plants, and pests. You have put the uh, um, unfortunate and innocent, maybe not innocent, but the victims of this crime uh, in a pejorative light, calling them pests. They are not pests. They are beings in their own right who are just trying to get by like everybody else probably not engaging in murder, so they're one up on you. You're the pest, more so than they are. I mean, you're not a pest. They might be pests. You're a murderer. You're a serial killer, a violent psycho... Well, psychopath is probably pushing it. I'm just... I'm, I'm using... I'm, I, please don't take this too seriously, but take it seriously enough. You need a better perspective. Uh, calling animals pets um belies the attachment you have towards them you have a possessiveness by calling them mine and by calling them pets you have given them a, a positive you have you have you have provided them with some positive assumption that 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 there is something uh, valid that makes their their existence and their comfort more valid than the existence and the, the life of these beings you deem to be pet pests. Pets and pests, it's just missing an S. Um, and pets are a real issue because of this. We are so attached that we become blinded by our attachment to them and we're unable to see reason. We... I will do anything to maintain that state of pleasure that we get by being in association with them. Anytime they are in pain, we suffer as well. Um, and we cling and, lust and crave for the comfort that we get from their love and their adoration and their physical contact and that sort of thing. And when they get old and sick, we are... Rather than doing what's in their best interest, we are unable to bear, unable to put up with their old age, and we kill them. Just as we killed the pests, we end up murdering our pets as well, and we call it putting them down so that we don't have to feel so bad about it. But it's murder, just the same. And uh, the part about plants... Um, yeah, unfortunately, there's not much defense there either because plants are not even sentient. So it's, again, just your own likely attachment to the plants, liking them, um, anthropomorphizing them, making them out to be somehow beings in their own right and feeling bad when they suffer. Or um, they could be vegetables and you, you require your sustained sustenance from them. Unfortunately, your sustenance is not defense for the murder of other beings either. And there are ways to find reason, more reasonable solutions. 
more more reasonable means of defending yourself and those you care for. And you should look into those because really it would be in your best interest. I mean, this is certainly creating uh, delusion and cruelty uh, habits that you might not even be aware you're cultivating the desensitization to the suffering of others. Even just insects, it starts small. Tokang tokang, drop by drop, the cup is full, cup becomes full. Thank you, Bhante. We've asked all the questions in the first tier and we've crossed the hour. Thank you everyone for your questions. Appreciate your interest as always. Thank you, Chris, Jim, Edit, for your help. May everyone be happy and free from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.